0: We're tired. And by we, I mean lots of things. We're tired. We meaning when our wider culture, we're tired. One of the the best terms out there, most commonly used terms to describe our time is a culture war. It's a great term, isn't it? How much it carries. How much it describes our day-to-day lives. Uh, In our wider culture, everything feels contested. We know that places like elections contentious, but now it feels like there's intense fighting and warfare over every little thing. Public health, sports, landmarks, public holidays, education, even language, even our very bodies are subject of these culture wars. In all of these areas, we're just a click away from finding internet rage going in those directions. It feels like while we're tired, we're just tired, worn down weapons in a war being waged outside our control. Our age, it may be secular, we may say we've moved past God, but our age still produces crusades. And perhaps you'd say such wars are appropriate, whichever side you land on. It's, it's appropriate to be intensified fight about some things. But can we also agree that it's really exhausting So much of this exhaustion, I think, has to do with just wider disunity, fragmentation in our culture. Um, And by we, I'm saying we're tired, I also just mean locally, too, with smaller institutions, smaller bodies within our, our culture. These divisions, they don't just cut across big things, they cut across churches, friend groups, families, marriages. We're tired. Uh, if you're here and you're not a Christian, wouldn't you say that you're tired too? This isn't just a church thing I'm talking about, right? The, this exhaustion that we're experiencing has many sources, and some of you talk talked about for the whole time of the sermon, just, uh, but one of the sources, I think, is just dis- is disunity. It's exhausting when suddenly it feels like the battle lines divide groups of people that you thought were close and familiar churches so all of a sudden the the battle lines of our wider culture are cutting across church or friendship groups it becomes easier to build friendships with folks who you know are on my side and this is to say that, that there aren't hard conversations worth having there are, we're exhausted and some of it I think has to do with how the tidal wave of disunity in our culture just crushes us again and again and again in the church In this passage, Paul tells the church how to be united. And I wonder also if he charts a path towards unity that also is a path that could be out of some of the exhaustion that we experience. And the way out is having the mind of Christ. I'm going to offer this way to you, both to you who would say, I'm tired and I'm a Christian, and also to you, those of you who say, I'm tired and I'm not a Christian. I'm still investigating the faith. I think there are riches for you here too. Paul writes this church, the Philippian church, it's a church that's united and strong. But it has a creeping. there's a creeping exhaustion, you can hear in this letter. There's a creeping disunity. We read in verse in chapter 2, which Omar's going to be preaching on in a couple weeks, that there's grumbling and disputing. We read in, in chapter 4 that there are two leading women in the church who are embroiled in a public conflict. There's bickering. There's signs of fighting. Paul responds passionately in this particular passage, in this passage, to that growing problem of disunity. And I'm going to outline two basic se- sections of this text. The first is the plea of Paul. And that will be verses 1 through 4. And the second thing I'll talk about is the path of Christ. The plea of Paul and the path of Christ. The path of Christ be verses 5 through 11. So the plea of Christ, or excuse me, the plea of Paul in verses 1 through 4. Remember in the last section which Larry preached about, uh, Paul was calling the Philippians to be steadfast together in the face of opponents and in the face of suffering. So he begins this verse with his so, or with a therefore, rolling off what he was talking about last time. He calls them to be united because if there's no unity for a church, there's no way that a church can stand firm in the face of suffering, in the face of opposition. And the rest of verse one, you'll read, it's a, build, it's a it's his passionate like build-up clause after clause, clause after clause, building up on this plea to be united. He says, if there's been any encouragement in Christ, if any comfort from love, if any participation in the Spirit, if any affection and sympathy, Now when Paul's using the word if in this sentence, he isn't questioning uh, if these things have been there for the Philippians. They have. This isn't a a conditional statement, if then. This is more of an emotional buildup towards his plea. Uh, It's it's almost like an example, a window to the way this could work is if I'm sitting at the dinner table with my toddler son and I'm distressed because he has a bad attitude at the dinner table, I could say, you know, in my heart, I'm like, if if there's been food made for you, if the table's been set for you, if you know that I'll get you whatever, I, whatever you need, complete my joy by having a good attitude, my beloved son. You know, you do hear it's it's not uh, like I'm referring to things that I know are already true as the basis for then My my plea to him. And that's more with what Paul is doing here. And Paul's plea is the command in this, this section. If all these things are true, if there's participation, if there's encouragement in Christ, if there's comfort from love, participation of the Spirit, affection, sympathy, his plea. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. In other words, Paul's plea is for them to be one. Complete his joy by them being one, having the same mindset among them by being united. And this is the overarching purpose for this whole passage. This is his, the thing that Paul wants for the Philippians, this, this church where there's a creeping disunity and bickering. And when Paul is urging them to be one, have one love, one mind, it's not him saying that they all need to be the exact same. This is an important caveat. The language of have one mind and having the same love, it seems to say that, it sounds like that. Like we're all supposed to think The Office is the best TV show. Or we're all supposed to agree on whether uh, um, AJ Brown or Devontae Smith is a better wide receiver, which one's the better wide receiver, you know, or we all need to have the be of the same mind in, in how our kids are supposed to be schooled, or what age are our kids are gonna be introduced to screens or something. Like we all have to be of the same mind, right? <laughs> He's actually not calling for that. He's not calling for uniformity, for agreeing on every single little opinion. But he's calling for unity, for the church to have the same same mindset, the same heartbeat, the same view of the world, or this particular same view in which we approach things as the church. And then the following verses, Paul then talks more about this plea of his, to complete his joy by being one. How do we get to the point of having the same mindset, Paul says? Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. In other words, to be united, to break out of the exhaustion, Paul tells the Philippians to lay down their selfish ambitions, their visions, their own glory, their own comfort, their own security, and instead to look to the interests of others. Uh, Paul doesn't say to never look to your own interests. He actually assumes that they will. If you look at the language of that verse closely, he says look not only to your own interests. We have to look to our own interests some in order to survive, right? But his plea for the church is that the primary thing for them their governing principle, their shot, their shared mindset, would be, would be this: I count others more significant than me. Now let's take a step back and note that this is a wild thing to say. When you're at a church this morning. You get, if you're showing up today, you have at least, I would guess, some familiarity with Christian life. and I think it's just in our wider culture, like there's me saying this, like, hey, it's a good moral thing for you to look to the interests of others before yourself. People be like, yeah, that sounds like a good moral right thing. Yeah, that sounds right. So let me try to make this so if we hear it and just kind of, it's like, oh, that's a churchy thing to say. It kind of just washes off of us. Let me try and make Paul's plea fresh for you. And I'm going to make it fresh by showing you how painful it is. Okay? Look around you. Look around some of the people around. Who's God brought here this morning? Whether you know these people or not, you may not know them very well. That's okay. Good now. Have a look at them. Consider this. I'll start with a churchy one to make this fresh. At church, you should count the worship music preferences of those around you as more significant than your own. To those of you who are married, just a direct application of what this is saying. You should count the things that your spouse wants to spend money on as more significant than the things that you want to spend money on. To those of you who struggle because there's someone around you who has different politics than you, you should count the person who has the different political interests than you as someone who is more significant than you and who knows things that you don't. That person's not a grunt in the army of your political opponents, but someone with stories, wisdom, fears, interests. And you should count what he or she has to say above what you have to say. Do you see now how painful this is? How hard? How... Scary and foolish and naive, this command is, this plea of his, and everything that I just named worship, how our households spend their money, politics. There are real stakes in every single one of these things. Warfare and division actually makes way more sense, doesn't it? On what basis can Paul make such a plea for to have a mindset like this? It's only on the basis of what Christ has done for him and what Christ has done for the Philippians and what Christ has done for you. So let's turn away from the plea of Paul towards verses 5 through 11, which is the path of Christ. These verses, verses 5 through 11, uh, it's a dicey thing to highlight the Bible verses that are the most important. Uh, But for whatever allowance you'll give me this morning to do that, I'll say this, these verses are among some of the most precious and important. From cover to cover in this book, um, there's a poetry to these words uh, there's some scholars wonder if Paul wrote this as like a hymn or a song, or if he was quoting a hymn from someone else, from the earliest years of the church. But there, not only are these these verses beautiful, uh, they also they say a ton about who Jesus is and what he did. We learned that Jesus was pre-existent before he was born; that he was in the form of God before he became a man. That we learn that he's God. That he had an equality with the Father that he didn't just take advantage of. And we learn we learned also, not only was he truly God, but that he truly became man. Taking on the form of a servant, and again, whenever he see servant, he usually is better translated as slave. Taking on the form of a slave without dignity or honor. Those are just a few things we learn about Jesus from these beautiful words. This is the beating heart of Paul's letter to the Philippians is these verses right here. If this letter is about joy, it's found in what Christ did here. If this letter is about the meaning of life, it's about how Christ lived his life here. If this letter is about death, it's found in how Christ obediently died, like it says here. If this letter is about the hope of glory, it's found in how Christ was vindicated following his obedience, like it says here. This is the beating heart of the letter. But for our purposes today, and there's a whole system there's a whole dense theology that comes from these verses. But for our purposes today, let's keep our eyes fixed on why Paul says these things. Sing or does he sing these things? If it's a song. Why does Paul say these things here in the context of him telling the church to be united? For this bickering church to learn to love one another? Why here? The path of Christ, it was because the way for the Philippians is the path of Christ. That's why he quotes these verses here. The path of Christ, what is it? It's lowering yourself. Trusting that one day God will raise you. Paul calls this the mind of Christ. It is the one, the mindset, the same love that he calls the Philippians to. But it feels appropriate for me to call it a path, the path of Christ, because there are directions implied in this, aren't there? It's going low, trusting that God will vindicate and bring bring someone high. Do you see the downward direction of verses six through eight? Jesus was in the form of God. He was God. He was God Himself in the heavens. He had all rights and privileges. But he didn't count this as something to be grabbed after. He wasn't like the, the politician who always sat in the night, always sits in the nicest chairs and always wants to be recognized at parties. Even though that would have been Jesus' right. More than anyone ever. He didn't grasp after that. But he emptied himself. You hear the downward up here. he emptied himself by taking on the form of a slave. Some translations take this line and say he made himself nothing. Emptied himself can be kind of confusing. Jesus did not empty himself of his divinity, but he he emptied himself through the act of actually what he took on, which is the form of, 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 of a man. He humbled himself without abandoning that he is God. And being in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, Unlike Adam, unlike the first man, who exalted himself in disobedience, Christ obeyed to the point of death. Even death on a cross. That's the climax of this section, by the way. Even death on a cross. The one through whom the universe was created. He didn't just obey to the point of death, But he died a criminal's death. A humiliating death. A death where he was naked, abandoned, publicly mocked, bleeding out, and nailed to a wooden post. Jesus went as low as anybody can go. Why? Because in humility, he counted others. He counted you more significant than himself. He didn't just do this as some arbitrary act of kindness. You know, like me going, walking down like a, a center city street and putting quarters in, in like PPA town in the, the parking slots. This wasn't just an arbitrary act of kindness. He did this specifically for you. For the people of God. Because he loved you. Because he loved us, his lowering of himself, taking in the form of a man, his obedience, his death on the cross—all these things were specifically required to reconcile you, to reconcile us to God. He didn't just do this so you could have your ticket punched to go to heaven when you die, though it does mean that. He did it so that you could enjoy God, be cleansed of every single one of your sins. Be at peace with your neighbor. Have meaning in your life. Here's what's wild. He lowered himself for you, even though he utterly knew you. He knew the darkest things you think in the shadows of the night. He knew what you did on the worst day of your life. He knew your anger, your apathy, your lust, your pride, your bitterness. Yet he still lowered himself for you. Not for the version of you on the best day of your life, but for the version of you on the worst day of your life. Jesus became nothing so that you could become something. Jesus gave up everything to the point of having nothing so that we who have nothing could one day have everything. Whoever else or whatever else you adore, you worship in your life, will never do for you what Christ did for you. They will will never go this low for you. Would your political savior ever do this for you? Would your therapist? Would your parents? Would your kids? No. No religion, no philosophy, no spirituality can compare with this Christ. No one will ever love you this much. if you haven't embraced this Christ if you don't have faith in him like what in the world are you waiting for? You're not going to find anyone better. Because Jesus Lord himself getting back to why Paul is saying this because Jesus did this for you you can lower yourself. And this is how we get unity. It's by drilling us into our souls. Do you see how Paul's logic works here? Why he points them to what Christ has done. Whatever ways my interests are loftier than the person next to me, Christ's interests are far loftier than mine. Yet he still lowered himself for me. So I can lower myself for Another. And when you get a whole community of people who think like this, you have unity, and God uses communities like that to change the world. Some of you you may still be asking the question, how? How, like, I love your heart in this, Stephen. Um, This sounds really pretty and nice, but, like, how? How do I bring this mind, the mind of Christ, into my marriage? into my conflicts with my friends, into my struggles at church. How? Um, I want to give you, a, at the risk of this sermon going well, I want to give you a basic scheme for how to do this, how to put the interests of others above your own. that must be really helpful for me. And as with many things that are helpful for me in following the way of Jesus, I got it from our former late pastor, John Alexander. Um, It's so rich and practical that it's worth repeating. Um, And it's just a a threefold questioning of yourself. And I want, I fear, I surrender. I'll go through those in a second as a way to have the mind of Christ just on a day-to-day basis. But I think that this scheme is rich. I, I would encourage you to use it when you're having a temper tantrum. Use it when you're planning for your future. Use it when you're praying. And I'll use the... The example I used earlier, like my son having a bad attitude at the dinner table, I, I'll use that as an example for you all. I asked my wife last night. I was like, "What have I been cranky and irritable lately?" And uh, she said, "When our son was asking you for something at the dinner table." I was like, "Yep, okay." Well, there's the example I'll use. Uh, I want name what your interests are. This is super important. Paul does not say to pretend like you don't have interests or needs, like you're a holy ghost, without dreams, preferences, or desires. Paul doesn't assume that. Paul actually says, look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Implied there is that you have interests. So name them. I want, name what you want. So me, in the middle of my son, demanding that I get him more food, disrespectfully... What do I want? I want my son to respect me. I want my son to appreciate all that my wife and I do for him. I want our dinner table to be a place of peace and enjoyable for me. I want to not just have orders barked at me like I'm a crummy waiter. I want. Then go from I want to I fear. Name the fears that are lurking beneath your desires. This allows you to further grasp kind of the superstructure underneath what you want. It also allows you to start building up courage because courage is always facing your fears. And you'll be surprised with even the most trivial things like what I'm going through here, what deep fears you have underneath whatever your emotional responses to anything. You'll be surprised how deep you can get. I fear that my son will never appreciate or respect me. It's a pretty big fear. I fear that my vision for a family dinner will just, is just that, will never really happen. I fear that I'm too tired and angry as a dad and in failing to raise my son. move out of I want, I fear. Move to I surrender. Surrender your interests. Surrender the things that are outside of your control. As Paul commanded us to do, as Christ modeled for us to do, It's surrendering his interests and lowering himself. And the step of surrender is so freeing, it actually helps you to be more joyful and love others. Which is kind of the point. Like, Paul commends the mind of Christ here. He... Not because like it's it's a path of drudgery and misery. Jesus undertook all the things he did with joy. The way he calls us to live is not a way of torture and self-mutilation. It's a way of joy. I surrender. I surrender that my son should have the burden of proving to me that I'm a good dad. Why should he have the burden? Like he can't prove that. I surrender whatever fake vision I have of family dinner. So instead I can embrace the real one. I surrender my need for tranquility and instead turn my eyes towards the needs of myself. Which is just for more food. And out of that, I want, I fear, I surrender. You can then move to I serve. Without Christ, these steps will only lead to bitterness. But in Christ, they lead to joy, and they lead to vindication and exaltation. And that's where I want to conclude. Is looking at verses nine through eleven. Um, read these verses again with me. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that in the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Jesus, the one who went the lowest, has been vindicated by the Father, and lifted up, and exalted. Because he did not grasp equality with God, he's now Lord to the glory of the Father. Because he, did not, because he took on the form of a slave, he's now ruler of all. The one to whom every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is king. Because he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on the criminal's cross, he has now been bestowed a name that is above every other name. This is the end of the path of Christ. It's vindication. It's God uplifting and glorifying and recognizing. Every single little thing that you do to lay down your interest for the sake of another in Jesus' name, every single little thing, on the day of Christ's return, it'll be your crown. It'll be seen. It'll be vindicated. It'll be worth it. God sees each little thing you do he will vindicate every single thing. Even if you don't see a speck of fruit from it in this life, God will vindicate all Christ has done in you in the life to come. Everything. And to close where I began, I think this knowing this is the way out of exhaustion. Because Jesus lowered himself out of love for one another, he passed into exaltation and joy. If we persist in this kind of love towards one another as a church, if we practice this mind of Christ in faith and say God will make it worth it, I think there are joys on the other side of living this way. We will experience joy. It may not be on our timeline, but God will lift us up. He will breathe new life into our weary, into our weariness. So I charge you with this, to have the mind which is yours in Christ. Count others as more significant than yourselves, looking not to your own interests, but also to the interests of others, knowing that whatever you do is seen and will be vindicated by God. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.